Hello, and welcome to Built In, the FMI podcast for the built environment. I'm Scott Winstead, president of FMI Consulting. I'm really excited about the first of our two-part episode conversation on exit strategies and the various options owners have for transferring or selling their business. How to exit is one of the single most important decisions that every business owner will face at some point. For context, there's four ways to exit a privately held business. You can transition the business internally to a next generation of shareholders or family members. You can sell the business to an ESOP. You can go the M&A route and sell to a third party, or you can liquidate, which is an option that we wouldn't highly recommend. Joining me on the podcast today are Alex Miller, Matt Godwin, and Nathan Perkins from our FMI Capital Advisors team to cover the first of the three of the four exit options. Alex Miller is Managing Director and Co-Lead of our Contractors and Construction Services Group. Alex will cover the third-party M&A option. Nathan Perkins is Managing Director of our ESOP practice. He's advised on hundreds of ESOP deals worth billions in value over his 20-year career. Matt Godwin is Managing Director of our Ownership Transfer and Financial Advisory Practice. He has over 20 plus years of experience in financial services and capital markets. In this episode, we cover some of the big picture themes like the various options and the why behind each option, the objectives that typically drive each option, and what are some of the best practices. Alex, Matt, and Nathan, welcome to the show. You know, one of the things I'd like to do with this conversation is to try to frame it through the eyes of an owner operator that is at that stage where he or she starts to think about their options, options for transitioning, for exiting the business and what comes next. I'd love to start out maybe Alex with you. What are the three options? Just a broad strokes overview. And then Matt, Nathan would love to hear from each of you around the internal ownership transfer option, as well as the ESOP option. A lot of what we're going to talk about on on this podcast, right? Because we have Matt, we have Nathan here. You know, we're really talking about the the spectrum of options that exist between this external, this internal, this kind of hybrid that's an ESOP model. I think it's important to note just at the very beginning that the M&A market within the engineering construction space has dramatically changed in the last five to 10 years. We used to have conversations with contractors that were saying, hey, you've really got to consider internal. You've really got to consider ESOP because the M&A market is, is not as robust in our space. And, and that has changed. Changed. We have seen more M&A activity in the engineering construction market over the last five to 10 years than we would have ever imagined. And, and we see that accelerating currently. I mean, I think you can read a lot of headlines right now that say, you know, M&A market is down, you know, and that's true globally. We're not seeing that in the ENC space, right? We continue to see buyer demand. And, and what's really driving it is, is that buyers have started to recognize that our industry is a place where they can participate in broad macro trends that are taking place. As they think about how do I want to play in the energy transition that's taking place in the United States, as they figure out, hey, how do I want to deploy capital that addresses coastal erosion or increased environmental concerns or aging infrastructure or the urbanization and population migration that's taking place? These are broad macro trends that smart money is trying to figure out how do I get a piece of, right? How do I invest in companies that are addressing these concerns? And so we're going to talk a lot about, should you consider an internal transaction? Should you consider an ESOP? And, and there are reasons you may do that that are completely separate from money, completely separate from value creation. There is a lot of buyer demand out there for, for companies in our space. And we do continue to see acceleration of M&A activity across the entire spectrum of engineering construction businesses. Well, Matt, maybe start with you in terms of one of the two internal options and just what does it look like in terms of transferring ownership from one generation or one owner to the next generation? 
Alex made a great point about what are the objectives and kind of what are you solving for? And that's really where you come down to it on the, on the internal side, because a lot of times you have family businesses that are either transitioning from one family to the next or transitioning from family more to employee ownership. And that's really where the internal options come into play. And the internal option, I liken it more to a process than a transaction. It's not something that happens day one, like an acquisition where there's a cutoff point and you transact the ownership in that manner. It's more of a longer term process through which you're transitioning the ownership, the, the leadership and the management of the business. And importantly, along with that, the governance of the company as well. So there are a lot of different factors that play into it. How you get there, there's a direct model of selling stock directly to employees via cash or you know a mix of a note. And there's also a sharing model, which we see a lot of where you've got a situation where owners are transacting their business by sharing profits over time, and then more of a partnership model. But really, it's a longer-term process through which an owner is accessing the liquidity of their business, transacting over time, and putting a plan in place that's flexible that you can build on and direct over a long period of time. Nathan, how about how about the ESOP option? We have kind of a spectrum here, and I think ESOP sits squarely in between the third-party option and the internal options. ESOPs are different than the internal transfer option that Matt was talking about because they are more broad-based in their ownership strategy where everybody in the company gets shares in the, in the ESOP as opposed to typically a select few. They also come with more regulatory oversight from the standpoint of what happens post-transaction, but it's a little bit faster. So if you kind of look at spectrum of options again, an ESOP may take three to five years to fully exit versus a little bit longer time horizon with an internal ownership transfer versus a shorter time horizon with a third-party M&A sale. So I, I guess it really kind of sits right in the middle of the spectrum. I think the other thing that's important to level set from the beginning here is that there's a lot of gray area between all three of those, meaning there are ways that we can structure transactions that are a hybrid between a lot of these different options. And there are stair-stepped approach through it. Everything is bespoke to you as an individual and you as a company. Meaning, you know, it can be as simple as we're going to go transact, we're going to go call a strategic buyer in the marketplace, they're going to buy 100% of the business, we're going to walk away free and clear. Those, those transactions exist, but there's a lot of in-betweens. There's partnerships with a buyer where also some of my key employees are going to get equity in the business going forward. There are hybrids where we do a partial ESOP and some of my key employees are going to get direct ownership, not indirect through the ESOP, but direct ownership. And so I think it's important to remember that there's a lot of these kind of gray areas and, and it's important to understand this is what we mean definitionally by the options as we kind of put tent posts in the ground. But what we've got to do is we've got to figure out what are our objectives, what are we solving for, and how do we make the right customized solution for you to accomplish your liquidity, transition, continuity? How can we customize a solution that makes sense for you there? It's really legacy as well. I mean, this is someone's life's work. And in, in many situations, a good chunk of their net worth is tied up in the business. So there are all kinds of ramifications for that. You could argue that this is, if not the single greatest, certainly one of the single greatest, most strategic decisions that an owner operator will contemplate during their career. And then there's the whole avenue of what's next. What do I do day two after this event is done, if it's an event versus a process, but what am I going to do to fill up my bucket? How do folks exit well and exit gracefully? 
Nathan, you mentioned the timeline for, for ESOPs is typically three to five years. Matt, I'd love to come back to you and contrast that with if somebody were to pick the ownership transfer option, what do you see typically as the timeline to fully extract from an ownership and from a management perspective? We typically say that it's eight to 12 years. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the industry average within the construction industry. And that is driven by a number of factors, first of which is the financial. It takes a while to have an owner be able to extract the value of the company through shared profits as you're working through, whether it's an LLC buyout or an S-corporation buyout. But really, the single driving factor around that, to me, is more on the people side, because you know, unless you're in a situation where you're starting day one and you know, and your next generation leadership team, they are ready to step up and they're ready to step in and manage the business. There's typically a developmental timeline that they have to go through to be ready to take hold of the business. So when you're looking at options and you're looking at feasibility of different ways to do it, that really plays into it. If you've got a situation where someone has a leadership team that's two years away from being ready to step in. And that owner is also a couple of years away from being ready to step out. And as you say, have somewhere to go and fill their bucket. You can structure a faster way to do it from a financial standpoint. If that's not the case, then you're looking at different options where you can have a slower process to, to transact that equity over time. I think it's fair to say, based on what you just shared, that starting early is key. You can never start too early. Yeah. You have to build flexibility into these programs because number one, we can model every which way a company is going to look over the next 10 years, but we all know in this industry, that's not how it's going to turn out. You may have a growth path, but it's going to be up and down over time. You can have good years, you can have bad years. You can have years where your employee base changes. You're going to have years where you need to invest in the business to keep more capital in the balance sheet. And you may lose a partner, you may gain a partner. So there are things that you have to plan for. It's not always going to go perfectly. So, you know, getting a sense at a minimum of what's feasible with respect to what your organization looks like and what's feasible from a financial capacity standpoint, at least early on, I think it gives you a big leg up. Two constants we typically think about is one is time marches on and rarely do things stay the same over time. And so having options and having flexibility as things become more fluid and life happens are really critical. So would love to transition and talk a little bit about the why behind each of the options. So again, if you think about it through the eyes of an owner operator in this position, if you put yourself in the shoes of, of one of your previous clients and think about the outright sale option or the M&A option, what are the typical reasons behind why someone would choose that option? Yeah, and I think it's it's really important to caveat it the way you said, Scott, right? We're having this conversation as if we are a founder-owned, employee-owned, family-owned business, right? Meaning we are privately owned today. We're not private equity-owned. We're not a division of a public company, right? A lot of the M&A activity that we see in the marketplace is companies that already have institutional capital behind them, their corporate divestitures, their options, or their, their, their companies that M&A really is the path forward if there's going to be a transaction, right? There's, there's not the option to do something internally or do an ESOP because they've set themselves down a path already where they need to go through an M&A process. You know, there's a couple of reasons why you'd want to go down the M&A path. The first is it is the quickest path to liquidity. It is the path where, you know, when we're talking through all of these three options, it's the path where someone else is showing up with money. <laughs> and it's the path where 
someone else is saying here, you know, I'm actually going to monetize, I'm going to capitalize the earnings in your business, I'm going to pay you for the value in your business. And, you know, again, that can take the form of, you know, 100% cash at close, it can take the form of, you know, a percent buyout, they can, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways that we can work through that. But it's the quickest path to liquidity. It is the path where more strategic value can be paid through valuation. If you have a business that fits a need for a buyer, whether that's a financial buyer or a strategic buyer, there is a willingness and there's the ability for us to go get a premium in the marketplace because we're not valuing the business based solely on its earnings. We're also valuing the business based off of the strategic value that it's providing to some other party, right? And what they can go do with it. The other reason why you would kind of consider going down an M&A path is going to be one, I want to partner with someone who's going to create more opportunities for the company and for my people. We we see opportunities all the time where a strategic buyer says, I want to acquire this company and let me show you what I can do with it, right? Let me show you the clients I can introduce you to. Let me show you the, the geographic footprint that I can take your skills and services and spread it across. Compared to the other two options, there is the ability for that one plus one equals something more than two. And while the economic benefit for that largely goes to the buyer, the non-economic benefit impacts all the employees, right? It's it's really great and interesting to see some of our clients who have transacted watch their businesses five to 10 years from now grow into something that they could have never done on their own because you know they they tapped into a larger platform. The the third thing that I'll say as we kind of consider the options is it is also the quickest path to risk transfer. There is a clearly defined risk transfer that takes place. And, and I want to caveat that there are some risks that you're going to live with post-closing more often than not. Matt, how about you? How about on the internal ownership transfer side? When you think about it through the lens of that owner-operator, what are the whys or the reasons behind choosing that option that you typically experience? Well, there are a few. Roughly 70 to 75% of it, uh, of companies in the industry use some level of internal transaction. And that may be because number one, they may or may not be saleable, but the reality is most companies have an objective or a key vision that they have for their company. And that could be number one, to keep it a family business and maintain that through you know the life cycle of generations. And you've got roughly 20 to 25% of the ENR list that are family owned. And that's because they've got a stated goal to do that. Then you've got companies that reach some level of inflection point and they get to a, a, you know, they get to an area where they're thinking, okay, I could use this as a motivation for employees. I could retain and attract with ownership, broaden it a little bit from family, but really it's, it's looking at, at what is the best model or the best operating model for the business? Is it one to two owners? So a lot of firms are looking at it thinking, what's the best governance model and, and looking at it as a retention tool and a way to keep the organization going from a legacy standpoint and from an enduring standpoint, just by driving the business with the right people. Matt, I mean, I think one thing that, you know, we've always talked about, and I know you and I have spoken to clients with is, you know, the people that do it really well on the internal side, it's, it's because they've really linked culture, strategy, and ownership together. There are very saleable assets, very saleable companies in our marketplace today who have just said, you know what? We know that there's value out there, but we think what makes us work is this culture that we built of being an employee owned or a partnership based model, right? And we want to be really thoughtful that the ownership program that we put in place matches where we want to take the business. What's the goal? What's the strategy? What's the culture? What's the vision for our organization? And can we link that economic risk? alongside achieving those objectives. Nathan, what about what about on the ESOP side? 
you know, when you think about when when folks choose that option, typically, what's what's driving that those decisions? So I would say there's four reasons why people choose an ESOP. So I think the first one and the second one are kind of linked, but starting starting with from the top, there's just no buyer. Some of the companies we we talk to, or a good chunk of the companies we talk to, have tried to sell the business already, and they just haven't found a buyer or Going into the second point, there's no reasonable buyer or a buyer that's willing to pay you know, a fair, what they consider a fair deal for the business. And I would say that's a big obstacle to executing. And I think when you move, move carry it forward to the third point, goals and objectives, right? So it's one of the things we as investment bankers and advisors to privately held companies spend a lot of time talking about. What's important to you? What's important to your stakeholders? What are the things that what are your core values as an organization and how do these transaction options line up with what what's important to you? And I would say one of the last reasons why people choose ESOPs is taxation. I mean, listen, nobody likes paying taxes, right? ESOPs are extremely tax efficient, right? So uh, some, of the, some of the big benefits that I think that people focus on are the ability to avoid recognizing capital gains tax at the time of the sale, right? So when you kind of look at, you know, to Alex's point earlier about capitalizing a future earnings stream into the present, an ESOP allows you to do that in an extremely tax efficient manner for the for the sellers of the business and ultimately allow the company to perpetuate. I'd love to transition now and talk a little bit about best practices. As you think about the ESOP option, what are some of the best practices that drive success when folks choose that path? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the first one is obviously hiring good advisors, people that know what they're doing. Uh, any of the transactions we're talking about are specialized here, right? And we're talking specifically about the built environment. But regardless of what industry you're in or what transaction you pursue, it always makes sense to have an expert. And if you get an industry expert, that's, in my view, even better because people that are in the market and executing these transactions on a regular basis understand unique aspects of the particular deal you're talking about, and then even more importantly, the specific industry that you operate in. What that does is allows you to get more certainty into the outcome when you're thinking about feasibility of the transaction. If you don't really know the market, you don't really know how to advise a client on things like what is the company really worth, right? What are the kind of the key terms to a transaction that you might enter into and setting expectations so you don't have surprises at some point in the process. We try and get certainty in our, our, our initial discussions with the client because, again, we know the environment so well and we're doing so many transactions in the space that we, we were able to set clear expectations with the clients. But other than that, I mean, specific to an ESOP best practices, we spend a lot of time being very thoughtful about the approach. Uh, ESOPs are one of the differences between ESOPs and internal transfers and, and third-party M&A transactions. They're a little bit more regulated, right? So we have to be very careful about the, the thought that goes into the transaction and how we do things. And really, again, using an advisor, you know, such as FMI that really knows how to do these deals right, I think goes a long way to satisfying the regulatory requirements that go into, into a transaction. Those are probably the two biggest things that I think we, we find are, are really important in the integrity of the transaction. That's, that's great, Nathan. I appreciate that that insight. I'm curious from an employee's perspective and from a communication standpoint, how can leaders that choose this option go about bringing the, their employee group and their team members along so that this, you know, to use Alex's phrase earlier, so one plus one equals something greater than two? How do they make this a cultural strength if they choose this option? So ESOPs are a little bit unique in those three choices because 
it really brings everybody into the tent, right? So when you're thinking about an ESOP, it's a very broad-based ownership strategy. So we find in going through these transactions, almost every time we do one, the owner is kind of chomping at the bit or the sellers are kind of chomping at the bit to say, when can I tell people, right? You know, very They're excited. They want to tell people. They want to announce it. They want to get bring people into the fold. And because it is very exciting for the rank and file as well as the top talent in the organization when you do an ESOP. And it does have an impact on, on culture as well as the ability to attract and retain talent for an organization. So I think owners have a perception in ESOP transactions that once they do the deal, there's going to be this groundswell of change in the organizational structure where people are going to act differently right away. But it does take time and effort. I think that's the key to you know, gaining that cultural benefit from an ESOP transaction is effort and communication, right? Because again, we talked about that announcement, right? So that's a very pivotal point in the in the communication process is letting people know that you've done this great thing, but keeping the momentum, keeping the communication going, involving key stakeholders in the business and uh, really communicating the benefit over time is also just as important because people get busy, they forget, takes a few years to get meaningful benefit inside of an ESOP plan for the participants. So really having that commitment to culture and commitment to gaining that cultural benefit I think it's very important because, you know, we are looking at, you know, typically a seven to 10 year time horizon before people accrue meaningful benefit they can touch and feel inside an ESOP. There's a lot of hard work that goes into gaining that cultural benefit and picking up that track to retain talent outcome that everybody's looking for. Nathan, I think the other thing that, you know, we've seen with ESOP owned companies, you know, specifically in the built environment is, you know, it kind of goes back to that, you know, you can't say it one time. You've got to say it over and over and over again. It's continually reinforcing what is the benefit to you? Why is this a good thing for you? Why are we all in this together? And, and the firms that we've seen that have done it really, really well, it's very thoughtful, it's very intentional, and it's very repetitive. And we've seen firms that it has done wonders for the organization. I mean, and, and you know, there, there are case studies across the industry of people who've really done a good job with it and, and have seen dramatic results from, you know, from people who have really truly bought into it, but it doesn't happen without intentionality. And so we've got to continually say, no, this is why this is good for you. This is why this is a positive thing for you and, and kind of continue to deliver that message over and over again. It is very important that you keep the momentum going. And so there's a company in Baltimore that make HVAC products, let's just say, and they have an annual meeting for their ESOP plan. And the first thing they do is announce how many millionaires they've created as a result of the ESOP. So that's fun, right? But it, it takes time to get there. And it, you know, it takes time to gain that effort and that traction inside the organization. And the only way it happens is time and effort and consistency. I've seen owners deliver and, and kind of give the message on, hey, we, we've sold the business to an ESOP. Here's what it means to you. And what it effectively means to the employees is for free, you are being given equity in this business. Now, the equity in the business has to grow to make it worth it, right? So we've all got to grow the value of the business to really make this a good economic event for you. But for no dollars down, we're going to start funding you know, your retirement account with equity in our business. And if we all grow this, we'll all be there together. And people say, okay, but what's the catch? You think about the other alternatives that existed you know, for, for most of our employees, this is the best alternative for them, right? It's it's a it's free upside. We're we're not having a conversation about their compensation, their bonuses, their, you know, their 401ks. This is additive, but you have to work really hard to continue to deliver the message of if we grow this together, 
this is what it means for you. Yeah, it's great. And I appreciate the perspective, Nathan, and, and going, Alex, back to something you said about, you know, people have to hear it over and over. I think the research would say six times is the minimum. The sixth time is when the same message actually, you know, somebody will recall, oh, yeah, I think I, I remember something about that. So, Matt, just to kind of stay with best practices with respect to the internal ownership transfer, the non-ESOP option, you know, what do you typically see drive success? There are a couple different buckets. Um, I, I'd frame them as people, financial, and process. So on the people side, I think going into it, uh, the things that really make it work from a best practice standpoint would be having a real a realistic view on kind of the readiness of that next generation. And what are the development plans that are needed, you know, at the key positions to make sure that you've got the right people in the right seats going forward. Also, from a selling shareholder standpoint, you know, what is the best future role for you as this, pro- as this, as this process unfolds? And what are you going to do specifically post-company? So addressing those things early on, I think, helps it. From a financial standpoint, um, having a realistic view on valuation is critical. There are different ways to get, you know, you can get fair market value out the gate from an M&A standpoint, also potentially from an ESOP standpoint. But you know, the higher the valuation that you put on the sale of stock of a business going through an internal ownership transition process, the more risk that you put on that business as it relates to its ongoing ability to keep the right balance sheet, have the financial capacity to grow, but also make it affordable for buying shareholders. So having a realistic valuation uh, is, is very critical, consistent, Maintaining solid profitability with no surprises is typically the best way to go and allows this to happen over a good period of time. But also, and one thing to consider if you're a business owner is, you know, keeping the business from a financial standpoint somewhat manageable during this process. If you're in a high growth stage or desiring to ramp the business, let's say 40, 50 percent in the next couple of years, it's very difficult to manage internal sale process through that. You've got capital needs. You've got people that are extremely busy on larger projects, things of that nature. So keeping it and understanding where the business does really well and staying in that sweet spot can be very helpful to a business as it went through an OT process. Now, on another note, from a process standpoint, it takes time and it takes a lot of focus. It's not a day one transaction. It is a plan that you're going to put in place that's going to occur over a number of years. So adapting that plan over time, addressing it annually, making sure that the correct changes are made over time is, is needed. So there's going to need to be a focus on it. But when you take a step back and look at the whole process as a whole, it really is going to take a lot of trust and understanding within the culture, but more importantly, between the selling shareholders and the new shareholders, because you're stepping into a, a transaction process that's going to be a series of different transactions over a period of time. And typically the selling shareholders are going to be the ones controlling the company and having control of the governance during that period. So really having a trust in place between everybody, this is going to work is critical. No, that's great, Matt. I appreciate that explanation. And obviously just for context, we're, we're spending a lot of time on this call and this conversation talking about the transactional elements to these, these are all, for all three options, as you guys would all attest, there is a whole lot more to each of them than just a transaction, right? There's people, there's culture, there's relationships, there's legacy, all those things. And so I don't want to under emphasize those, but as we talk about 
you know, kind of just moving, you know, equity from one place to another. We are talking a lot about transactions. Matt, with respect to the ownership transfer option, right? Typically, when we look at it, uh, we look at it through uh, through two different spectrums, right? There's the there's the ownership transfer. How do we move equity from one gen to the next, one group to another? as well as the management succession. How do we get the next group of leaders ready to take up the mantle and the developmental aspects to, to prepare them and all those sorts of things? So I think that's really a critical part of this whole process. And that's why we typically partner on engagements with our leadership and development team on that, addressing both the ownership side, which has its various components, but understanding that the real engine to make this work is going to be the people and making sure that you've got the right development plan. But to go back on best practice as it relates to this is you know, developing a clear shareholder criteria and ensuring that you've got the right shareholders in place. People and leaders and development of those leaders is critical for all three of the options we've talked about, right? Scott, as you think about succession planning, right, outside of ownership transfer. So we're, we're really talking about ownership transfer today. We're not talking as much about how do we build the next generation of leaders, but within the ENC world, you know, these are people-based businesses. The value of, of the businesses that we work with and the value of the businesses that we're talking about here are, are the people, right? It's their ability to get work, perform work, continue to operate and operate profitably. And so, you know, one of the things I think is really important is, is that that development of, of next generation leaders is important across all three of these options, right? And anything that you want to do. I always joke that we have people that come to us all the time that say, you know, I haven't developed a next generation leader. I'm getting close to retirement. I don't know who's going to run this business next. So I can't sell it internally. I'm going to have to sell it to somebody else. And, you know, I always look at them and I say, who wants to buy that? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, you know, no one is going to give you a significant amount of purchase price to go solve a problem for you we think about what drives value, you know, what drives value in an organization is the same across all three of these options. If you want to talk about when we go back to, you know, what are the pitfalls of an ESOP? You know, one of the things that Nathan's probably going to talk about is you go transact, you're still carrying a lot of risk because, you know, in an ESOP, you're going to carry back some seller financing as part of that transaction. And you haven't developed people to go run the business and go develop and continue to sustain that operation. So, I think it's critical to just remember that the next generation and thinking intentionally about succession planning and thinking intentionally about building next generation leadership is critical, not just to get value out of your business, but just to continue to make sure that you have those options that your business can continue going forward. There is not a path forward in any of these options that exist when you haven't invested time into the next generation of your leadership team. Alex, Matt, Nathan, thanks so much for being here. It's a great conversation. Please be on the lookout for part two of this exit strategies conversation, where we'll talk about valuation and what drives it, some of the pitfalls of each of the options, what's the process look like to get started, and what some of the success drivers are within the first 100 days of each of the options. And please like or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss an episode. Mm -hmm.